Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. It's, uh, it really is wonderful to see all of you here and to see some of your faces on the screen just a few moments ago. And it's wonderful to be able to study God's word with you. So let's look at God's word together, shall we? For 2,000 years or so, Christians around the world have believed that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, he died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. Today, we're going to try to answer two questions, two simple questions. The first one is, did the resurrection really happen? And the second one is, what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with us, especially in light of what we are walking through, the season that we're going through as people and as a nation? So here's why we're asking these questions. First of all, if you identify as a Christian, whether or not the resurrection really happened is of vital importance. And we're gonna see why. But if you don't identify as a Christian or you're not sure whether or not to identify as a Christian, the question is vital for you too. Because frankly, if the resurrection did not happen, if it's just fake news or some elaborate hoax, then you really have no reason to care about anything that Jesus said or anything else he allegedly did. You can ignore it all if the resurrection did not happen. Because the fact is that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God in the flesh. And as we've read through this Gospel of John over the past many, many months, we've seen him make that claim again and again. He predicted that he would be betrayed, that he'd be arrested and killed, and that he would rise from the dead. At the very least, that's what his authors, the authors of these Gospels, claim he predicted. And so if he did not resurrect, then he has no credibility. He's just one more person that made big claims and promises that he could not keep. And you have no reason to take anything he said seriously. And his biographers also have no credibility. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, because they all claim that he was dead, and then he wasn't. And they saw him with their own eyes. But if Jesus of Nazareth did resurrect, as his biographers say he did, then don't we have to take 
everything he said seriously? Don't we at least have to think carefully and, and wrestle with what he has to say to us? If he claimed to be God, he predicted his own betrayal, his own arrest, execution, and resurrection, and then he fulfilled all of those predictions to the T? If he really did walk out of a grave? So here's where we begin. Did the resurrection really happen? During the era of the Roman Empire, tens of thousands of people were executed by crucifixion. How many of those people can you name? Jesus of Nazareth is the only one that we all know. Now that, that in and of itself doesn't prove that he rose from the dead, but it is significant. And it points us to something important. Unique circumstances surrounded Jesus's crucifixion that made it unlike any other crucifixion before or after. We, we just read this account in John chapter 20 that Kathy read for us. That account was recorded and, and shared and it was spread across the planet over the past 2,000 or so years. And there is no other person that's become more widely known than Jesus of Nazareth. There's no other person that's had a deeper effect on history than him. There's something unique about this man because something unique happened when he died. Either things occurred as this passage describes or something else strange happened. And historians and scholars in other fields, they've, they've developed possible explanations for what happened that made Jesus' death so strange, so unique. Four dominant theories have been proposed. One of them, first one, is that Jesus didn't actually die during his crucifixion. He simply passed out. He was beaten and crucified, and he blacked out due to blood loss and trauma. The executioners believed he was dead, so they let him be buried. The fact is that people have been buried alive. Terrifying, but true. But let's remember that Jesus of Nazareth was arrested, and he was whipped extensively at least once before he was sentenced and once after he was sentenced. And the kind of scourging that prisoners experienced in that day would have left their backs open and raw. We've talked about this in weeks past. Often prisoners' bones and their organs were, were exposed as the, the tissue in their back was ripped away. And there was so much blood loss that some prisoners died before they even got to the site of execution. Jesus, once he got to the site where he would be executed, after being scourged, his wrists or his hands were, were nailed with large iron spikes to a, to a post. And then that post was, was lifted and was, was attached to another post to form a, a cross. And his feet were nailed to that vertical post. And then the whole cross was lifted and it was, the bottom was dropped into a hole and, and there he hung, just a couple of feet up from the ground for hours, convulsing, writhing, choking. Normally crucified people would die from shock and or asphyxiation. Couldn't breathe. And this was meant to be a slow, painful 
inevitable death. And in Jesus' case, soldiers eventually stabbed him under the ribs to, to ensure that he was in fact dead. Now, according to this theory, this same man passed out on that cross and woke up in a tomb and he unwrapped himself and he pushed away a massive boulder and he walked out of that tomb half dead and he found his disciples, stumbled his way to them and found them and when he found them, he convinced them that he had defeated death, that he was the son of God. Does that sound likely to you? Does it sound even possible to you? If it does, I'd love to talk to you more about this theory. Here's a second possible explanation. Jesus' disciples went to the wrong burial site. This has been believed and, and proposed by many people over history. Mary Magdalene and, and other uh, of Jesus' uh, female friends, they were so overwhelmed with grief and distress to the point that they showed up at the wrong location. And then they ran back and they told the other disciples that Jesus was not in the tomb. And those disciples, they ran to the wrong location too. And I've said this before, but before, before GPS existed, I got lost a lot, very often. My wife can attest to that. And often I'd be very stubborn when I was lost. I'd say, no, I know how to get there. I know this is the place. It must be around here somewhere. I never wanted to admit that I was lost. But let's say that these men and women, because everyone is prone to get lost once in a while, let's say they did go to the wrong tomb. And then as news began to spread, uh, uh, and the idea began to spread that, that he may have been raised from the dead, as that starts to get some traction, couldn't someone, anyone, just go to the right tomb and open it up and say, look, there's your Messiah. He was here all along. Not only are these Christians mistaken, but they're dumb and stubborn. And they've been proven wrong, and it all would have come to the screeching hall. The movement would have stopped there and then. But no one did that. And the message of Christ's resurrection continued to spread over 20 centuries. Here's another, the third of the four major theories that seek to explain away the resurrection. Jesus' followers hallucinated the resurrection. They were traumatized by his death, and as a result, they experienced this long group hallucination. Shock and distress can do things to our brains that we don't expect. And if you combine the shock and distress and trauma with maybe a, a lack of sleep and other factors, it's possible that someone might start to see things that they wish were true, like their friend who was just executed alive again. But one problem with this, of course, is that Jesus, in his resurrected body, he showed up. He was seen by hundreds of people over the course of 40 days. He sat with some of those people. He walked along the road with others. He ate with them. People interacted with him, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in groups. And, and by the way, when the Gospels tell us about the people who saw Jesus, they often tell us the people's names. 
And those names were meant to serve as checkpoints. A reader who was reading could see, well, well, I'd like to confirm this narrative. And in order to confirm the report, they can go and ask so-and-so, did you really see this? Did this really happen? Let me go confirm that with your neighbor, with your friend. And then after 40 days, somehow, these hallucinations just suddenly stopped all at once. But, but they seemed so real, real enough that everyone agreed that they had truly been with the resurrected Christ and held on to that belief and sparked a world-changing movement based on that belief. Here's the last theory that's been proposed often, and it's, to me, perhaps the most intuitively plausible one, the one that I think many people really do believe this. Maybe some of us here do believe this. Jesus' followers made up the whole story. But in order to make the story work, they had to, of course, do something with Jesus' body. They had to steal it and, and hide it, dispose of it somehow, and then claim that he rose from the dead. So they made up the resurrection story so that they could continue to spread his teachings and launch this movement. And again, that does seem plausible, but, but a few things make it problematic. For one thing, in each of the four Gospels, it's women who first report that the tomb was empty. Now that in and of itself might seem unremarkable, but the fact is that women, their testimonies were not believable. I'm not saying they are not believable. They were not believable in this particular culture. It's women in each of the four Gospels who report not only that Jesus was alive and that his tomb was empty, but they report seeing angels, messengers from God who told them that Jesus was alive. In the first century Roman world, a woman's testimony was almost worthless. Women couldn't even testify in court. So if a group is hatching a plan to convince the world that something as remarkable as a resurrection really happened, I think it's worthwhile to ask, why would they base these unbelievable, wacky claims on the testimonies of people that were held to be unbelievable, on the testimonies of women? You'd be setting yourself up to be disbelieved, wouldn't you, by putting these claims in the mouths of, the people in your group that are the least likely to be seen as credulous or to be, to, see, to be seen as trustworthy, I should say. The only reason you tell the story like this is if it really happened like this and you had no other choice. But here's another problem with that, that idea of a conspiracy theory, right? That idea that this was all an elaborate hoax, the disciples faked it, made up a story, and then held to it. Some of us like conspiracy theories. There's something attractive about them to people. And this one does, again, seem plausible. Until you start to think about who these disciples are. Remember what they were like. So often, as you read through any of the four Gospels, you see that these disciples were often confused, skeptical, competitive. They were a mess. So the idea that these people came up with a story they knew wasn't true. And they all stuck to it. To the T, perfectly. 
in order to spark a movement that changed the whole world and was all founded on that one story. That's a stretch. Read the Gospels and see how clueless these people were. See how disorganized they seem to be apart from Christ. And then read the book of Acts and then see how these confused, fearful men became leaders. They became revolutionary teachers who willingly died for their message. Every last one of them willingly died for their message. This theory would hold that they willingly died for a message they knew wasn't true. Why? Here's why they died willingly and gave their lives to propagate, to spread the news that Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead. It's because when they saw their friend and teacher risen from the tomb, all of his words immediately rang true to them and they all started to make sense. Those words that Jesus had spoken to them were now worth living and dying for because when they came face to face with the resurrected man, they themselves were changed. Here's what John Stott, the great English teacher and author, wrote. He said, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. It was the resurrection which transformed Peter's fear into courage and James's doubt into faith. It was the resurrection which changed the Sabbath into the Lord's Day and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle and turned his persecuting into preaching. You see, the resurrection changed people permanently. We all do things that are out of character sometimes, right? Unexpected things. Someone might say to you, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you had that in you. Wow, I'm surprised that you did that. And you might say, well, me neither. I didn't realize I had that in me either. But there's a difference between a, a momentary change and a, a lifelong transformation. These people changed radically and permanently. Again, they died willingly. Saul had every reason not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He resisted it. He hated those who believed it. And, and he did everything he could to silence those people. But when he saw Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Christ alive, all of that didn't matter anymore. He had to say, this makes no sense, but he's alive. And if he's alive, he must be who he said he is. So, did the resurrection really happen? It's a question that all of us need to wrestle with. We all need to answer it. Are there aspects of what the Bible says or aspects of Christian teaching that you find problematic, you, you find difficult to accept? You don't like, are there aspects of the Bible's teaching that you, you just don't like? It doesn't sit well with you. And, and maybe is that part of why you might hesitate to commit to following Jesus as Lord? The first question I believe you need to ask isn't, are the teachings of Christianity plausible or acceptable or okay? No, I think the first question you need to ask, you need to start here, is did Jesus 
rise from the dead. Because if he did, now you have to deal with the whole Bible. And you can start to wrestle with the rest of what the Bible says and wrestle with those doubts and get help to work through those doubts. And... But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the rest of it doesn't matter. Did the resurrection happen? We all need to wrestle with that question, and we all need to, we can't spend a lifetime wrestling with it. We must answer it. What do you say? But here's the second question we need to ask. What does all this have to do with us and what we're going through today? As individuals, as a church, as, as a nation, what, do we, what does this have to do with us? In the Bible, we have four biographies of Jesus, otherwise known as the Gospels. Two of them were written by Jesus' immediate disciples, Matthew and John, and two of them were written by authors who were not original followers of Jesus, but they interviewed the original disciples of Jesus in order to gather data. And that's Luke and Mark. So in each gospel, there are certain themes and there are certain details that each writer chooses to highlight. And that's true when it comes to the resurrection as well. Each of the four Gospels takes a, a particular perspective and highlights particular details and themes. We can't look at all four takes on the resurrection. We're just going to look at John's. So, so let's go back to John chapter 20. And I encourage you to open up a Bible if you have one there. John chapter 20. Let's look at what's going on here and try to place ourselves in this, in, in this scene. Jesus of Nazareth was buried just before sundown on a Friday. And now it's early Sunday morning. And Mary Magdalene, who's a, a friend and follower of Jesus, walks to his tomb. And she leaves home before sundown, I mean before sunrise, I should say. And John doesn't tell us if she was with other women, but the other gospel writers tell, her that, tell us that she was. She was not alone. She and other women had gone there with spices and ointments, that's what Luke tells us, to anoint the corpse. It was a Jewish ritual. And their concern as they made their way to the tomb was, how are we going to get in the tomb when we get there? How are we going to roll the stone away? Hopefully the Roman soldiers stationed there would, would move it for them. Now as Mary approaches, she notices the stone had been rolled off to the side. And John doesn't tell us if, if Mary looked in the tomb or if she leaned in. What he does tell us is that she ran back to the other disciples. And it says in verse 2, she told Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and that's a reference to, to John himself, the, the narrator. It would seem that Mary did look into the tomb, though, didn't she? Because she tells them, someone has taken Jesus, the Lord, she calls him. And she must have been with other women, too, because she says, we don't know where they have laid them. Not I, but we don't know where they have laid the body of our Lord. And these little details that John leaves out, they're confirmed and they're added by the other Gospels. And when you look at them all together, it's really amazing that the full picture that you get of this whole scene. So Peter, as you might expect, if you know anything about Peter, when he hears this news, he rushes out to the burial ground. Now at first, the Gospel writers tell us that the disciples didn't believe Mary's testimony. But they, Peter and John do run out there. John goes with them. 
And John includes this little detail in verse 4. He says, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And it's, it's almost like John could not help but include that little note to tell us, um, I'm faster and I got there first. Just so you know, not an important thing, but you know, I just want you to know. I'm not sure if he's bragging or what, but as, as my son, I believe, would say, it, it's, it's a weird flex, but okay. In any case, they crouch into the tomb, Peter first, then John, and, and they both see the linen cloths that were used to wrap the body. And then he sees the cloth that had covered Jesus' head, and it was folded neatly. And incidentally, my, maybe your mom did the same thing. My mom used, used this as an argument for why I should make my bed in the morning. Because she said that if the resurrected Lord could take time to fold the sheets, so can you. In any case, John says, he saw and believed. That, that is, he believed what? He believed that Jesus' body had been stolen. Because verse 9, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they head home troubled, confused. Where have they taken our Lord's body? And in verse 11, we find out that Mary is back at the tomb. She's looking in and she's sobbing. And that's when the story gets weirder. She sees two angels or messengers of God. Let's pick it up in verse 13 and read from there. They said to her, the angels did, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, goodness, when she heard his voice say her name, it all clicked. This is my teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. What does this have to do with us? Well, to understand the relevance of this narrative, we have to start with an older narrative in another garden, with another man and another woman. So in the opening pages of the Bible, we're told that God created a man and woman, and he placed them in a garden. There were no tombs in that garden, and there were no tears in that garden. No weeping was ever heard in that garden because there was no death, no loss, only life. And Adam, made by God, stood in that garden, and he was told to protect it and to cultivate it and to enjoy it. That was his calling. That was his mission. But he grew discontent and suspicious of God. 
and he saw satisfaction outside of God's purposes for him and outside of his calling, and so he approached a tree. The only tree that he was told not to eat from, and he took and he ate, and in so doing, he brought the curse of death onto himself and into the world. Paul puts it this way so plainly and succinctly in Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, one Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the sin of Adam, Adam, the man, brought the curse upon us all. And ever since then, it's been centuries of tears and centuries of tombs. So fast forward. After centuries of tears and tombs and fallenness, on this Sunday morning, Jesus of Nazareth stands in a garden. He's trusted God from the beginning to the end. He willingly walked out his calling and completed his mission. It involved walking to a cross. The Bible calls that cross a tree. But he didn't walk to that cross, to that tree to take and eat. No, he walked to the tree to give himself, to be consumed himself, to lose everything. And now he stands in that garden with an empty tomb. And he asks this woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Tomb is empty. No need for tears. Why are you weeping? What does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us, New Hope. Because Jesus Christ did not simply break death's grip over himself. He broke death's grip over us. He defeated the curse. Once and for all, he took and absorbed all the curse had to offer, the full threat, the full power of it, and he walked away victorious. The first man was put in the garden to be a a gardener, to protect and cultivate and keep it, and he failed. Now Jesus stands in the garden He did more than simply protect and keep and cultivate. Although he's mistaken for a gardener, he did more. He saved, he rescued, he overcame death, and he stands there victorious. The resurrection of Jesus means resurrection for us. All of us who, who, like Mary, grab onto Jesus, cling to him, and say, my Lord. I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read this to you. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see what he's saying? The first fruits 
of those who have died. Jesus' resurrection is a taste of what's to come. It's the first fruit of a whole harvest of resurrection. Listen to what Paul goes on to say, verse 21. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. As for in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. First Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, all who belong to Christ. You see, Jesus Christ's real bodily resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection and the resurrection of all who belong to Christ. And, and just so you know, we belong to him by believing in him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, and what does it mean to be saved? Well, we often focus on this. It means to be forgiven, right? To be saved means to be justified, to be declared righteous. It means to be accepted into God's family. Yes, it means all of that. It also means saved from the curse, saved from death. By believing in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, not only do you get his righteousness credited to you, his perfect record, you get his life. His resurrection life, eternal life, the resurrection proves that. It proves that the whole debt for our sin was paid, that the curse has been lifted, that sin was defeated, and death will not have the last word. That is our hope. I have never lived through a more discouraging, upsetting, hopeless time than I'm living through right now. Do you feel that too? The discouragement, the hopelessness, the trouble weighing on you. We're surrounded by disaster and yet, and yet still feeling like we're on the brink of maybe something even worse. Do you feel like that? Like, like, like you were in a train wreck and, and, and everything's a mess and the, the, the train car that you're sitting in is balanced on the edge of a cliff, swaying, waiting to tip over. And you just feel like any moment, it's gonna go over the side. There is so much for us to despair about right now. There's so much for us to be angry about. The future looks grim. And so I find myself asking myself, and I ask you, do you have any hope? Do we have any hope? Where is that hope? If there's hope, where is it? I've been told everything is riding on this election. Really, everything? Our future depends, I've been told, on Supreme Court appointments. Our future depends on police reform, overturning Roe v. Wade, or reforming immigration, or stemming global warming, or, or finding a COVID vaccine. It all depends on, pick one of those things. It all depends on that. And if that doesn't happen, we are doomed. It's our only hope. Really? 
Jesus of Nazareth disagrees 100%. He says, your only hope in life and death is that you belong to me. And because I overcame death, you will too. It's the promise of the resurrection, and it's the promise of, a, of life, eternal life, in a renewed, resurrected world. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. An unshakable kingdom where righteousness dwells. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2 tells us that is our everlasting hope, our only hope. Whatever we do here, beloved brothers and sisters, whatever we do here, whether it's vote or abstain from voting or demonstrate or work for change or lobby or invest or grieve and lament, Whatever we do here, we need to do it with mindset on that hope alone. It's the only way we're going to stay sane. It's the only way we're going to survive. Not just through this season, but through a lifetime of threats and tears and tombs. The only way we're going to survive is if we know that he will one day wipe away everyone every tear, and do away with every tomb. Politicians ask us to, to give them power. They say, give me power and I can save you. And they never deliver on their promises, do they? But King Jesus, he doesn't ask you for power. He made himself weak. He gave his life to save you, and he will powerfully deliver on all his promises. The resurrection proves it. And this is why Jesus could say to his disciples, just a few days earlier on Thursday night when he spent that last evening with them, he said these words, so also you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is our hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our hope in life and death. Do not allow us to stake our lives, our joy, our hope, anywhere else. Give us patience and trust to know that as sure as you rose from the dead, you will return, your people will rise, and we will experience you forever. Amen.